0: It was the morning of Friday, 14th of February, 1913. And Irish Times readers were the first in the country to read about the court action taken by Emily Sheeran against Patrick Dignam. No
1: letters, no said to have proposed in 15 minutes to read about, Read
0: Miss Sheeran, a governess took the action because Mr Dygnan had broken off their engagement. Mr Dygnan was a Longford man who had come into money and moved to Dublin. Mr Lynch, representing Emily, opened the case.
2: Miss Sheeran is the daughter of a respectable farmer in County Longford, whose family is well known.
0: As it happens, my name is also Emily Sheeran, but I'm a Dubliner. This is a story I found totally by chance. I was doing my family tree, looking through newspaper archives for stories about two of my great-grandfathers, one a Dubliner and one from Longford. I just made a mistake in the search field and came up with this breach of promise court case and a Longford Emily. That coincidence started my interest, but it was the court proceeding that kept me reading and the characters, People like Patrick Diagnan's defence counsel, Mr. Sergeant Moriarty.
3: On the death of a brother who died intestate in America, the defendant had succeeded undoubtedly to a good round sum of money. And since that time last year, he has been pestered by the offers of ladies to marry him every elderly spinster within a radius of a hundred miles of Iona Road, in needy circumstances, had offered to become his housekeeper and, if necessary, his wife.
0: Thirty-year-old Emily had come up on the train to stay with her friend, Mrs Jane Morrison, in Glasnevin and be introduced to Mr. Diagnan, the uh, newly attractive bachelor. Jane was in her mid-twenties, herself married to an older husband, a manager in the famous Todd Burns department store in Dublin. Now, both Mr. and Mrs. Morrison were enthusiastic about finding a husband for Emily, or her sisters, old friends from Jane's Longford days. But young Mrs. Morrison made the easier target.
2: This lady, Mrs. Morrison... This foolish lady, I should say, started to bring these two together. It was an old saying, and a true one, that it was a foolish thing to sign a bill or make a match.
0: The story of the two-day court hearing was in the Irish Times alone for over a week. The Sunday Independent had a long report as well. Here's another thing. This was Dublin in 1913. Yet everyone seemed more interested in this hill of beans than the stirrings of industrial unrest. By this stage, though, I'm ashamed to admit, I was too. I wanted to find out more about Emily and why she would have taken a breach of promise action. In fact, what were these cases all about? Professor Maria Luddy, Head of History at Warwick University, has published an analysis of other cases.
4: Basically, a breach of promise was a broken promise to marry someone. And you would have couples going out, maybe for quite a long time, a number of years or whatever. And sometimes that would be very well known among the community that they were going out. Then at some stage, the relationship broke down or one of them decided they didn't want to marry the other. So it was like having an engagement which was broken off. Most often, it was the woman who sued the male partner, she would have seen that this promise to marry would have somehow damaged her reputation. It would have made her less likely to be an attractive partner for a future marriage and that she would then go to court and seek damages for that loss. Marriage in 19th, 20th century Ireland, 18th century Ireland is a very significant thing for women because most women are expected to marry that is seen to be their kind of natural role in society.
0: This story had even more resonance for me. It was about my own neighbourhood too. Both the Morrisons and Mr Diagnon lived a short walk away from my house and then there were Emily's train journeys. We're now down at the end of the garden close to Phibsborough. I live beside the old railway, the Great Midland and Western Railway the railway that took Emily to and from Longford. Having found somebody with my own name, I thought, well, just perhaps, way back, we could be connected. I started to imagine this as if it was happening now, that there would be a steam train passing. I'd never paid attention to this before, but when I'm out in the garden, the clay is black with the type of sticky soot where it hasn't been moved in all that time. CIE, the old railway company, owned all this land. The land stayed as it was. I had forgotten that a couple of feet away, the funnels of the steam trains would have been belching out soot and it had just lain here all that time. On the day she was formally jilted, Emily had asked Mr. Deignan to meet her on the platform of the Broadstone Railway Station. Mr. Deignan, what are you going to do? What do you mean? Well, do you intend to marry me?
5: No, that'll do. It's all over now.
0: I know what I'd have said, but times were different. Much more than I could have imagined, though, Emily and others like her had the right to sue.
4: You're talking about breach of promise cases occurring across all classes. Even at the very lower end of the social scale, you have servants in households suing for a breach of promise of marriage. But generally the cases follow a fairly typical pattern the woman takes the case to court sues and it is tried in front of a judge and the jury and then the jury will award damages depending on how much of the case they actually believe Um, sometimes the relationship breaks down because the man literally just goes away and marries somebody else and it's often it might actually be somebody with a better dowry because remember, for most marriages in Ireland in the 19th and 20th, even for the 20th century, there is a dowry involved. So that's obviously problematic. And the fact that she has been left, as it were, and some of these women are literally left at the altar, that is a very public humiliation.
0: For Mr. Dignan, prosperity has been a long time coming, and he's justifiably proud of his wealth and advancement in the world. To the Dublin courts, though, He'd always be a farm worker, and a distinctive one at that.
2: You knew the Morrison family in the country? Yes. And they were decent, good old men?
5: Just the same as any other.
2: Did you know who his wife was?
5: No. I never knew anything of her or her people.
2: I should think not. Mr. Dignan, will you tell the court what domestic help you have had since you moved to Dublin?
5: I had a servant in August last, but I only kept her three weeks. She wouldn't clear my windows.
2: <laughs> I wonder she didn't fall through your windows.
5: <laughs> and
2: because she wouldn't clean your windows, you said she must
5: leave. Yes. I, I did get another girl, but she stayed only half a day.
0: Even Mr Dykman's own barrister couldn't resist a golden opportunity.
5: It was Morrison who introduced me to his wife. I told her I had advertised for the farmer's daughter to act as a housekeeper. Mrs Morrison said it'd be even better for me to get a wife. She said she knew a decent man who had seven daughters and three sons, or a very respectable family. I said I was in a bad way, as I'd buttoned me hand cooking. I suppose your resolution
3: of celibacy was breaking down by this time, under this bombardment.
6: Yes. Do you understand the question? Uh, No, my lord. Why do
0: you answer a question you don't understand? Emily met Mr Dignan for the first time in early October 1912. Within four months she was suing him. That's pretty good going, and not just for the courts. It had started on the morning of the 10th of October when she took the train from Longford and arrived at the Broadstone. The rail line was closed in sometime in the 1950s. But before that, this was the way people arrived into Dublin on the Midland and Western Railway. The station itself is on a a kind of a bluff overlooking another hill, Constitution Hill. And this one, it's quite severe in style, but it has this beautiful long colonnade to the side. And it must have been fantastic arriving in here and standing on a hill overlooking Dublin as you arrived right into the centre of the city, Emily, she will come down just across to the Constitution Hill, come down the steps and walk up the road through Fibsborough and onwards to Glasnevin, to where her friend Mrs Morrison has her house in Lindsay Road. Was the match with Emily got up by you? I
3: introduced them. And when you introduced him to Emily, he made up his mind in a quarter of an hour? A little more than a quarter of an hour. Mm. And is Old Dygman, in your opinion, the kind of man a girl would fall in love with on the view? His family say he's seventy-five, and he admits to (laughs) sixty-eight. So this fair Emily was wooed and won in a quarter of an hour.
0: Yes. Well, having crossed the canal, continuing north side into Glasnevin, we've taken the first turn right into Lindsay Road. There were tall, two- and three-storey red brick houses, bay windows. And these would have been the new suburbs at the time for the emerging Dublin middle class. Tall trees lining the street. But back in 1911, these were probably just saplings. Having come from a farmhouse, Emily's probably looking around her in amazement. These are brand new houses. It's a totally new type of living. It doesn't have the basement living where servants used to have to hide in the houses of old these are built with all the kitchens and living rooms at ground level. This was supposed to kind of save on domestic labour but of course there were still ranges to be stoked and pavements to be scrubbed and windows to be cleaned They had sent around a note to Mr Dygan to meet them in the morning over in Mrs Morrison's house Mr Dygan has come over, he's met Emily, they've chatted they seem to have got on well. It's a very quick decision, but I think two mature people are able to arrive at these fairly quickly. Emily knew this was going to be about marriage, and Mr Dygan knew it was to be about getting a wife, somebody who would help him keep house. Mrs Morrison asked me,
5: what do you think of Miss Sheeran?
0: And I said, she's a countenance girl, and she can chat. Mr Dygan has come back to his house while... Mrs Morrison discusses it with Emily because Mrs Morrison is to tell him quietly if Emily will agree. He obviously didn't want to suffer any public humiliation. The note comes around, Mr Dignan returns. Emily will marry him. It's all agreed. And then, what does Mr Dignan do but parade them all back to his house to show them the trophy home?
5: It'll be your own fault if you're not mistress of this house.
0: We're standing outside Mr Deignan's house. He has bought one of the most handsome, prestigious houses, one with a side garden, a bay to the front, a bay to the side, the same Edwardian-type red brick. It is, in fact, a very big house. It's very big for a man who is used to managing on his own on a small farm in North Longford. And Mr Deignan has had to manage without servants, it appears that he can't manage to keep any servants. One of the reasons, of course, his thoughts are turning towards marriage, encouraged by Mrs Jane Morrison from Lindsay Road. Mr Dignan is the archetypal single man in possession of a fortune who must desperately be in want of a wife. And why not Emily Sheeran? The statement he leaves them with is, it'll be your own fault if you're not mistress of this house. The house was the bargain. The house was clearly the attractive part of the arrangement. Because perhaps Mr Dignan wasn't. Is it really believed
3: in Longford that Dignan has £50,000? I, I don't know. I, On the view, would you take him to be worth tupples? i Now it is said, he looks like a millionaire bachelor. I never saw one. But we know that he is like an unshaven orangutan.
0: I could not say. This case had seemed so unbelievable, I wanted to find out more about the people mentioned. Were they real at all, or did I imagine this? I started with the National Archives. In 1911, I could find the Morrison family on Lindsay Road and Mr. Dignan in North Longford, but no Shearans of Longford, not even with spelling variants. I did then find the Shearans in the 1901 census, under the A-N spelling. Daniel, his wife Mary, and other children, but no Emily. By this stage, I knew we were not related, but my own family research had gone by the board. This became all about the Sheerans of Clondra. I needed help, and Longford County Library seemed the place to start. Martin, it? Yes, it Emily. Emily you. How are you Martin Morris is the archivist with its Heritage and Archive Service.
7: We have all the sources on the county that you can it.
0: This story... I mean talk about having a story with your name written a little bit only because of the misprint in the paper and right. getting in for Shireen. that's what led you to it I think she wanted the story to be found <laughs> <laughs> it would have been lost uh, otherwise for a century Martin has already examined the Longford leader for information about the case and he now produces enormous pages of newsprint much more than I'd seen yet I need better reading glasses
7: It's uh, an extract from the Longford Leader, dated the 15th of February, 1913. And you can see the headline is Longford Breach of Promise Action. And there are, well, there's a column and a half of text which outlines (laughs) the case. And it mentions at the bottom that it's to be continued in the next issue. And this is the next issue here, the 25th of February. And there's a full page of, more or less, a verbatim account of the case, and even a, a pen drawing of the defendant who is described at the top as Sorry. an aged and wealthy man who retired from farming at Moyne County Longford and went to reside in Dublin.
0: Well, he must have shaved since the previous day because he's described as an unshaven orangutan by his own counsel. Really?
7: <laughs> really? That's not a very flattering description. <laughs>
0: no. I think they were trying to make him out to be um, mm. a poor, you know, the more pathetic he was, the more right. unattractive he was. Yes. This, I can't believe it's a whole page. This mm. the, and this is the second yes, issue. Yes, it's a single page.
7: And it's the, the week after the, the first reporting of it. It's there in the th-
0: first page. Longford breach of promise action. Mm. Septuagenarian suitor and his flower. Yes. Mm. What? A, neither plenty. description is particularly
7: <laughs> attractive.
0: This is, when I would say, they must have... The verbatim account.
7: Mm. They tended to do that with, I suppose, the more newsworthy cases. They they gave verbatim accounts, what the counsel said, and the witnesses and the defendant. I suppose this was in the age before radio, before television. People depended on the newspapers for Mm. for their, their
0: window in the world. Given the court's blissful prejudice towards country bumpkins in general, I wasn't too sure how to take the leader... But, of course, both were local people and its editor couldn't be seen to take sides. What it could do was repeat enough of the testimony to satisfy the curiosity or prejudice of every reader, whichever home team they supported.
4: The journalists who went to the court, they also have have a role to play in shaping how the case was actually presented to the public outside the actual courtroom, because the other audience, of course, is the news reading, the newspaper reading audience. And again, often the journalist was entertaining that audience in his description of what has gone on in court. Because so you get things like little stories saying, oh, this guy comes to court, he's, he's uh, the defendant in a breach of promise case, but he's dressed in rags, uh, he looks really, really old, but everybody knows he's got lots of money, and he's just dressing like this to get some sympathy for from the jury and to try and persuade the jury that really he hasn't any money so they really shouldn't award any damages.
0: And there was another oddity about these cases. One of the features that made me think I'd imagined it in the first place. Here was Mr Sergeant Moriarty shameless enough to quote Dickens-Pickwick papers as legal precedent and the judge happy to play along.
3: In the case of Bardell versus Pickwick Sergeant Buzzfuz for the plaintiff, had two letters on which he built up a substratum of facts which proved absolutely irresistible and which resulted in the unfortunate Mr Pickwick being mulleted in £800 damages. £750. Thank you, my lord, that is so. And Mr Pickwick was locked up As a prisoner in the King's bench. He got
6: off by payment of the costs.
3: Since the trial of that famous action, we have never had such an action until now.
0: By this stage, the courtroom is overflowing. The Longford leader helpfully tells us that many Longford people were in attendance. Of course they were.
4: I do think that that the way to look at these courts is to look at them as theatre, because the barristers were actually performing. And of course, in their performance, they were trying to persuade the jury to think in one particular way. Um, I mean, the, the, the actual court cases are fascinating. If you just think of 18th and 19th century Ireland, courts were the forum where really dramatic stories were told. And they had audiences and people did go to courtrooms to be actually entertained. And you find with Breach of Promise cases that people are sometimes actually queuing to get into the court to actually hear the cases because they are a form of entertainment and they're also a form of gossip. So you had witnesses, uh, you had a crowded courtroom, you had the judge, you had the barristers quoting from legal texts, you had them quoting from novels, you had them joking with each other, you had them joking with the witnesses and often also with the jury so they are actually quite entertaining pieces of theatre Oh look,
0: this is new They've given the whole What's that? Oh, the description Just that... Tell us what happened at Clark's hmm.
7: I met her at the door and had to shake hands and I said come in and take something after coming off the train <laughs> I went into the shop and I called for a half port and a glass of stout
0: <laughs> You went into the snug. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Sergeant Moriarty finally gets the chance to examine the plaintiff, the countenanced and flower-like Miss Emily Sheeran. Did the defendant ever give you a little squeeze? No.
3: Did he
6: ever kiss you?
0: He did not.
6: Miss Sheeran?
0: Yes, my lord.
6: What drink had you?
0: I had poured two or three times, my lord.
3: And even then, did he give you a squeeze?
0: No.
6: Did you love him then?
0: I liked him well.
6: There had been reference made to nine rounds of drink being taken in the snug of Malloy's public house. But I am sure no suggestion for a moment was conveyed that Miss Emily Sheeran partook of nine glasses
0: of Longford port. I'm finally getting at the truth of the breakup.
2: The defendant did not play a man's part. He had broken his plighted troth to this young lady under the influence of his niece.
0: Mr. Dignan had a niece, a married woman with a young family with great expectations of her wealthy, aged, bachelor uncle. She wanted to keep him that way and took all her family with them back to Dublin to babysit him.
2: And when he was let loose again from the custody of his niece, what did he do? He went down to Longford and he married a girl, 23 or 24 years of age. You know the result of that. A girl, a neighbour of this young lady's, taken from within a mile of her place, and makes her his wife instead. That
0: was humiliation. Poor Emily. Her pride has been seriously dented, especially in her own neighbourhood. Time for Mr. Dignan to answer a few questions. When
5: did you get married? On the 7th of January.
0: Is he married?
2: Yes, my lord, since the 7th of January.
6: That is the
5: first I heard of it.
2: How old is this lady you are
5: married to? 23 last June.
2: Is she a young lady from Longford? Yes. A farmer's daughter?
5: Yes. Isn't that
2: the very thing you wanted from Mrs Morrison? A country girl to keep house for you? Certainly. How long did you know this girl?
5: I I knew her people when I was going to school.
2: When did you propose for her?
5: I wrote to her mother and was married on the Tuesday week afterwards.
2: And you didn't know the girl's Christian name? She
5: had two daughters, and I said it was the tallest I wanted.
0: So, what happened to Emily afterwards? The odd thing is, Emily Sheeran doesn't appear in any of the senses. She's not in 1901, but she'd probably left home at that stage. She may have already started working, but she does. she's not in Ireland, as far as I can see. It's surprising, and it's... Mm. Curious when it's the one piece of paper yeah, sure, you're
7: looking yeah, for. Yeah. I'll do a browse just when, when you're here because I'm not saying that you haven't done it already. Please,
0: I would be more than happy to find it. Um, double check. Game. It's Clundara, and, and. Clundara. Martin finds the Sheeran Sances for 1911. So spelling of Clundard there. Maybe. Of course,
7: yeah, that's, that's oh, it. Oh, look. That's it.
0: Well, well, well. No, that's it. Fantastic. So we'll i it off now. Um, oh, it's, hello, we've now got a Lizzie Mary. Yes.
7: James Joseph, Martha, Sarah Louise, Sarah spelt unusually, it seems, Margaret
0: and John Patrick. Though there's still no Emily anywhere in Ireland. A bit more. I was hoping maybe that Emily might have been in that one either to prove that she was the daughter, mm. but the court records do, of course, so she's mm. named... Um, it's maddening. Mm. And yet it just still gives a bit of mystery, so mm. maybe. Well, we we'll say 1883,
7: and it gives us plus or minus two. That's perfect. One result Passenger lists leaving the UK.
0: Martin has now found Emily's travel record from Liverpool to New York
7: 1920 on the Carmania. That's certain. Age 39. Record it just says in there so yes yeah sorry that's the transcription I got the original 1920 was the year she emigrated. there she
0: is there and she's described as a confectioner confectioner that's mm. she said she was in the confectionery business in Vermont, wasn't it that is it and it's just a single
7: page sometimes it's a folio with more information Kay. Mm. Oh, it's great though. that that. I can print this off and give it to you. Factory, which is now closed. Yeah. So right. it's, up. it's up this
0: I am beginning to learn why I can't find any shearings in Longford. It seems most of the family emigrated. Maybe visiting their farm will tell me something. I'd looked at Griffith's valuation, the mid-19th century land census, which shows the location of every house or farm. Mm, same scale, And the old road going up there, and 5A, is James Sheeran's. This whole site was the Sheeran farm. We've looked at the map. It explains why a farm has just gone. The family had died out. And the farm then was sold. It was just became an industrial estate. Chain link fences as a boundary. Dull brick, slightly neglect-looking walls. And a large and very shut industrial-sized gate. And I have never seen a farm vanish just like that. And indeed, the industrial estate itself is gone. But it's... Presence is a little bit harder to take. A neglected, empty, rusting stop signs, obviously all quiet. Just the bird song. Mm. Must have been a beautiful farm. The next step in finding a family is a visit to the local graveyard.
7: Hello, how are you? To, the, term, the, the, the grave is actually inside the gate, he said, as well.
0: Clondra Graveyard is a lovely peaceful place attached to the church near Richmond Harbour. We set off looking at the gravestones and nearly missed the largest, a large flat slab closest to the church door and a reflection of the Sheeran family status. The search has attracted local interest. 10 sure. November Absolutely, this is it here. This is one of them. Anyhow, one of them. yeah, yeah. Age, There should be Daniel. There, okay. Daniel, husband, yeah. Daniel, memory buyer. That would would have been Anne Sharon Quinn. That that was Daniel Sharon's wife. She died eighth of April, nineteen sixteen, age sixty-four. And then there's just that break in the stone, in memory, it's a flat. That's right, I remember. Daniel break. Sheeran. Daniel Sheeran. Sheeran. Daniel Sheeran. No. Oh,
7: yeah, then there's that's nothing. Where well, no, t- well, do you see walk, the right, name? Well. It's the Looks like 40, eight, 40 or 46. Yeah, to Robert.
0: And there's another reason for family pride. The Pope himself had knighted Emily's uncle for his work for the poor in Dublin. Martin has found a contact for me to visit. James Cox, whose father would have been a cousin of Emily's.
7: How are you? This is Martin Morris. I'm very pleased to meet you. Oh, this is, you? is Emily Sheeran. Emily
4: Cox. I'm right. oh, sorry, but I'm <laughs> being driven. <laughs> are we here? No. no, this is Martin Morris.
7: He did it
4: for you he was calling.
7: We, uh, we spoke on the phone, Mr sorry. Cox. I was asking you about Sheeran's. Do you remember that? Sheeran's, yeah. Yeah. yeah so uh, we're here. and This is Emily Sheeran. How are you? Yeah,
0: Emily. <laughs> Emily Sheeran as well. James tells me all about Emily's uncle, Joseph Higgins Sheeran, who was knighted by the Pope. Yes. Joseph Higgins That's right.
1: Joe yeah. Sheeran, who was my father's uncle, the Chevalier. He never said his name was Joe.
0: So the Sheeran family must have been very proud of their relative. Oh, the They were very proud of the chevalier so I'm just curious if you know any more about Daniel's family, his children I'm trying to think Daniel there was an Emily and let's see, James stayed in the farm
1: she was home here I saw her home here from America. Was home and Jim Sheeran had a, a big motorbike, a very, very, very big motorbike, mm. and uh, a side chair. And uh, he used to bring him mother in the side chair. Uh, he'd bring her husband on the back, on the pillar. It was heavy any water here, and they uh, travelled round on this outfit it a couple of months here one, one summer
0: I'd yes. looked for Emily in the census records but a lot of women they pretended to be younger so it's very hard to find anybody of the same age or Oh, I wish I knew his name. If it comes to you, will you let us know? <laughs> it knows. might come back.
1: It might. It's a long way back, you see. And you wouldn't have the interest then.
0: We never knew what happened. She just seemed to vanish, and I hoped she'd got married. I kind of thought she might. Well, you, got no th- well, you had no stress of her at all. No, but I hoped... But now we know
2: how much of this American money did you come in for?
5: I might answer that, my lord. Yes. About forty-seven thousand pounds. But I went three times across to America before I got the £47,000. And the lawyers plucked it.
4: One of the interesting things about these women is that they are prepared to go to court. They are prepared to have these stories told in public. And they are looking for damages. And then I think a lot of these women actually try and make a life for themselves, either using those damages to enhance their dowry, which might make them attractive to another potential husband or they use them in some way maybe to emigrate or do something else in their lives. So I think the, the damages are actually quite significant.
3: I will conclude my dull address with a quotation for the opera of patience which you might have heard. On one occasion, Mr. Dignan was said to have described this lady as a flower, and I suggested that she should have called him a potato. You will admit that the affection which the fair Emily had for the youthful Mr. Patrick was like an attachment a la Plato for a bashful young potato, or a not-too-French
6: French French bean. (laughs) The judge reviews the evidence. I refer you to the incident of the 10th of October when the defendant had asked the plaintiff not to go down to Longford until she went down a married woman. If the plaintiff could have looked into the future, she would probably have taken him on the hop. Old Dagnan had apparently marriage on the brain at that period and it was a case of striking the iron when it was hot. The suggestion that this girl saw the defendant at nine o'clock in the morning and that when the three o'clock train left Broadstone she was engaged to be married would certainly appear to be a stupendous affair if the defendant were an ordinary man. It was, however, known that he had matrimony on his mind and that marriage was being talked about. It was undoubtedly a queer story And if the defendant were not a queer kind of man, the thing could not occur.
0: The jury took just ten minutes to make up their minds. They found for Emily and awarded her £100. It was St. Valentine's Day after all. £100 was worth three years' salary as a governess. Emily emigrated to New York in 1920, giving her sister Louisa's address. Louisa's descendants helped me with the name of her husband. Emily and her husband, Peter Mellon, spent months in Ireland in 1932, touring around on her brother James' motorbike, sidecar and all. I found her in a census at last. In 1930, she had been married two years and was living in Manhattan with Peter, a manager with a bank. And this is how she had seemed to vanish. Emily, real age 48, claimed to be only 37. I wonder if her husband knew, but that's another story. Emily Sheeran Mellon died in July 1949, age 67, or 56, or 45, or...
1: This is the missus, just look
5: her over, this is the missus, she's mine. I'll get those kisses,
7: now I'm
5: in clover, I've caught some fish on my line. I own those lips, yes sir I own those eyes, yes sir And a whole lot more She was worthwhile waiting for This is the
1: missus Just look her over